This is Anand Venegala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Unfortunately, I don't think we will be having any guests today, so I would like to dedicate this podcast, however brief or long it may be, to some of the stuff I've been reading in my spare time and also for the assignments I have in college. And currently, I have on my table... Frederick Douglass's narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave written by himself. And I also have a copy with me of Rene Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy. And I also have on my plate William Faulkner's potboiler novel, Sanctuary, which is about the criminal Popeye and the kidnapping and brutal violation of Mississippi debutante Temple Drake and her eventual enslavement in the brothel of Miss Reba. So let's begin with what I've been reading from Rene Descartes' Meditations. I've initially, when I was reading this for another class, I was kind of skipping, skimming over it. Not quite skipping, but skimming over it because of the pace I needed to be in order to catch up sometimes because as I was taking on philosophy, I learned it would probably be a little harder than I expected because the texts are so dense and the concepts are a bit hard to understand or simple to understand, but conveyed in dense language that is almost on a higher level. But then I'm using this text for another class, Rene Descartes' text. And then I think it started to come alive when my professor was looking at Meditation 2, and he's looking at the wax example and showing how that leads to the view of a world as wax, and thus we could shape the world in whatever way we want. And that's a fascinating insight that I picked up. So let me also turn back to Descartes' view of the thinking thing, of how we are thinking things. We are not rational animals, as Aristotle argued, but we are thinking things, and that's all we have. What did I used to think I was? I'm reading from the narrative. No, reading from the... I'm currently reading from the meditations, the second meditation. What then did I use to think I was? A man, of course, but what is a man? Might I not say a rational animal? No, because then I would have to inquire what animal and rational means, and this will probably get too complicated, and thus from one question I would slide into many more difficult ones. Nor do I now have enough free time that I want to waste it on subtleties of this sort. Instead, permit me to focus here on what came spontaneously and naturally into my thinking whenever I pondered what I was. Now it occurred to me first that I had a face, hand, arms, and this entire mechanism of bodily members, the very same as are discerned in a corpse, and which I refer to by the name body. It next occurred to me that I took in food, that I walked about, and that I sensed and thought various things. These actions I used to attribute to the soul. But as to what the soul might be, I either did not think about it, or else I imagined it a rarefied I know not what, like a wind or a fire, or either, which had been infused into my coarser parts, but as to the body I was not in any doubt. On the contrary, I was under the impression that I knew its nature distinctly. Were I perhaps tempted to describe this nature such as I conceived it in my mind, I would have described it thus. By body, I understand all that is capable of being bounded by some shape, of being enclosed in a place, and of filling up a space in such a way as to exclude any other body from it of being perceived by touch, sight, hearing, taste, or smell. 
of being moved in several ways, not of course by itself but by whatever else impinges upon it. For it was my view that the power of self-motion and likewise of sensing or of thinking in no way belonged to the nature of the body. Indeed, I used rather to marvel that such faculties were to be found in certain bodies. But now what am I, when I suppose that there is some supremely powerful and, if I may be permitted to say so, malicious deceiver who deliberately tries to fool me in any other way he can? Because previously in the earlier meditation he spoke of one way he could be doubting himself because an evil demon or genius is trying to deceive him about anything. So back to where I was. Can I not affirm that I possess at least a small measure of all those things which I have already said belong to the nature of the body? I focus my intention on them, I think about them, I review them again, but nothing comes to mind. I am tired of repeating this to no purpose. But what about those things I ascribe to the soul? What about being nourished or moving about? Since I now do not have a body, these are surely nothing but fictions. What about sensing? Surely this too does not take place without a body. And I seemed to have sensed in my dreams many things that I later realized I did not sense. What about thinking? Here I make my discovery. Thought exists. It alone cannot be separated from me. I am. I exist. This is certain. But for how long? For as long as I am thinking. Perhaps it could also come to pass that if I were to seize all thinking, it would then utterly, I would then utterly cease to exist. At this time, I admit nothing that is not necessarily true. I am therefore precisely nothing but a thinking thing, a.k.a. a cogito, that is, a mind or intellect or understanding or reason, words of whose meanings I was previously ignorant. Yet, I am a true thing, and am truly existing. But what kind of thing? I have said it already. A thinking thing. It's almost very circular the way he argues. He argues in circles, and I wonder if that's essentially a part of what he's doing when he's trying to reconstruct modern philosophy from the ground up. And I want to get to his wax example and look at it briefly before I move on. Let us take, for instance, this piece of wax. It has been taken quite recently from the honeycomb. It has not yet lost all the honey flavor. It retains some of the scent of the flowers from which it was collected. Its color, shape, and size are manifest. It is hard and cold. It is easy to touch. If you rap on it with your knuckle, it will emit a sound. In short, everything is present in it that appears needed to enable a body to be known as distinctly as possible. But notice that, as I am speaking, I am bringing it close to the fire. The remaining traces of the honey flavor are disappearing. The scent is vanishing. The color is changing. The original shape is disappearing, its sizing is increasing, it is becoming liquid and hot, you can hardly touch it. And now, when you rap on it, it no longer emits any sound. Does the same wax still remain? I must confess that it does. No one denies it. No one thinks otherwise. So what was there in the wax that was so distinctly grasped? Certainly none of the aspects that I reached by means of the senses. For whatever came under the senses of taste, smell, sight, touch, or hearing has now changed. And yet the wax remains. I think he goes on for a while and he mentions that we'll see what remains after we removed everything that doesn't belong to the wax, only that it's something extended, flexible, and mutable. His eventual point is that the wax is not all these things that it seemed to have in its more solid state. And thus, I think his eventual point is that since wax can be shaped and molded, and it is not its properties, I think he would argue that we are not our bodies because we are thinking things, we are 
the cogitos. And his essential argument is that we perceive the sensual world not through the senses or even through imagination, but through a purely mental process called judgment, and which is a fascinating thing. And one of my professors noted that this was part of what created the modern world and why we we're able to have TVs, radios, because we don't accept the world as it seems to be. We want to go to the root of it. We want to go behind it. And we want to mold the world according to our liking and needs. And that's a fascinating insight. I mean, to think Descartes started all this, or is at least part of the start of all this, it's amazing. And now I want to go to Frederick Douglass's narrative, which I have not currently finished, but which I've been reading and have been edified from. And one of the insights I've noticed is how Frederick Douglass notices how the South and its slave system is essentially inflamed by lust and by lust and violence. And this is when the master is whipping a woman named Aunt Hester. I'll read it for you. I'm going to give you a short warning because there's going to be some foul language I'll be spelling out. Aunt Hester had not only disobeyed his orders in going out, his orders being the slave master's orders, but had been found in company with Lloyd's Ned, which circumstance I found from what he said while whipping her was the chief offense. Had he been a man of pure morals himself, he might have been thought interested in protecting the innocence of my aunt. But those who knew him well will not suspect him of any such virtue. Before he commenced whipping Aunt Hester, he took her into the kitchen and stripped her from neck to waist, leaving her neck shoulders and back entirely naked he then told her to cross her hands calling her at the same time a damned bitch after crossing her hands he tied them with a strong rope and led her to a stool under a large hook in the joist put in for the purpose he made her get upon the stool and tied her hands to the hook she now stood fair for his infernal purpose her arms were stretched up at their full length so that she stood upon the ends of her toes he then said to her now you damned bitch i'll learn you how to disobey my orders and after rolling up his sleeves, he commenced to lay on the heavy cowskin, and soon the warm red blood amid heart-rending shrieks and horrid oaths from him came dripping to the floor. I was so terrified and horror-stricken at the sight that I hid myself in a closet and dared not venture out till long after the bloody transaction was over. I expected it would be my turn next. It was all new to me. I had never seen anything like it before. I had always lived with my grandmother on the outskirts of the plantation, where she was put to raise the children of the younger women. I had therefore been until now out of the way of the bloody scenes that often occurred on the plantation. And so what I see here is Frederick Douglass being consigned to the role of a witness of these crimes, which he can do nothing about, which he can't resist, which he can't fight, which he can't argue against. And this is when he was a child, I think, and he's witnessing what is essentially sexualized violence, which occurs out of jealousy. And I see in this narrative, a portrait of how the, how sexual perversion comes from slavery, especially when slave masters start to have relations with the slaves and the slave master has to sell off his slave children to appease his jealous wife to avoid having to whip them himself and to avoid seeing his white sons and children whip and hurt the mulatto children of his. It's fascinating to see how Frederick Douglass portrays all of this. And I also like to go back to how Frederick Douglass sees reading. And which is ironically the path to freedom is outlined by the master. And he says this, the master says this. 
If you give a nigger an inch, he will take an L. A nigger should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. Learning would spoil the best nigger in the world. Now, said he, if you teach that nigger, speaking of myself, how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good, but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. These words sank deep into my heart, stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering, these are unconscious sentiments which he had at the time, and called into existence an entirely new train of thought. It is a new and special revelation, explaining dark and mysterious things with which my youthful understanding had struggled but struggled in vain. I now understood what had been to me a most perplexing difficulty, to wit, the white man's power to enslave the black man. It is a grand achievement and I prized it highly. From that moment I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. It was just what I wanted and I got it at a time when I the least expected it. Whilst I was saddened by the thought of losing the aid of my kind mistress, who taught him to read for a while, I was gladdened by the inevitable instruction which by the merest accident I had gained from my master. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose at whatever cost of trouble to learn how to read. What he most dreaded, that I most desired, what he loved, that I most hated, that which to him was a great evil to be carefully shunned, was to me a great good, to be diligently sought, and the argument which he so warmly urged against my learning to read only served to inspire me with a desire and determination to learn. In learning to read, I owe almost as much to the bitter opposition of my master as to the kindly aid of it, my mistress. I acknowledge the benefit of both. And I think his self-education clearly works here because he has a very skillful use of antithesis, dreaded, desired, love slash hated, great evil slash great good, diligently sought, warmly urged, inspire. It's a very skillful play with language. And I think he was a great rhetorician, and I think this rhetoric starts to be picked up later on. And it also shows in its in his own adaptions of sentimental portraits, especially when he shows how the grandmother is being abandoned to die by her masters. My grandmother, who was now very old, having outlived my old master and all his children, having seen the beginning and the end of all of them, and her present owners finding she was of but little value, her frames already racked with the pains of old age, and complete helplessness fast stealing over her once active limbs, they took her to the woods, built her a little hut, put up a little mud chimney, and then made her welcome to the privilege of supporting herself there in perfect loneliness, thus virtually turning her out to die. If my poor old grandmother lives, she lives to suffer in utter loneliness. She lives to remember and mourn over the loss of her children, the loss of grandchildren, and the loss of great-grandchildren. The hearth is desolate. The children, the unconscious children who once sang and danced in her presence, are gone. She gropes her way in the darkness of age for a drink of water. Instead of the voices of her children, she hears by day the moans of the dove, and by night the screams of the hideous owl. All is gloom. The grave is at the door, and now when weighed down by the pains and aches of old age, when the head inclines to the feet, when the beginning and ending of human existence meet, and helpless infancy and painful old age combine together, at this time, this most needful time, the time for the exercise of that tenderness and affection which children only can exercise toward a declining parent, my poor old grandmother, the devoted mother of twelve children, is left all alone in yonder little hut, before a few dim embers. 
She stands, she sits, she staggers, she falls, she groans, she dies. And there are none of her children or grandchildren present to wipe from a wrinkled brow the cold sweat of death or to place beneath the sod her fallen remains. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? And what I think Frederick Douglass really does well does well is capture the barbarity of slavery by showing the individual examples of how it chews up people, it hurts people, it violates people, and it eventually leaves them out to die once the people are of no use to the slave masters. And I think at least when it comes to spreading the messages of messages of liberty, we should show with vivid examples the opposites of liberty, what happens when liberty is denied, what happens when people are arrested for things like victimless crimes, what they do in the privacy of their own home and in the privacy of their own lives, especially with the war on drugs, which impacts families and individuals negatively, throws them in jail and shuts them out of the employment market, especially because employers probably will not hire many people with a criminal record at all, and then turning them out into a life of crime. And the cycle continues and continues until eventually you get imprisoned for life or you die somehow in the cycle. And I think it's horrifying to notice this. And I also think it should be noticed because we should see how the state is hurting people and how it is causing people to lose their lives, their dignity. And I think what Frederick Douglass did for slavery and for the abolitionist movement, we libertarians can and should do for the liberty movement. And another insight I found in Douglass's narrative is how he analyzes the slave slaves singing as a sign of their sadness rather than of their hope. And I think there is some kind of relevance to it because if some outside observers saw Americans and their festivities and everything, they'll think the Americans are happy and that there's nothing wrong. But at the same time, what if some of our festivities, our indulgences are indulging the Super Bowl, indulging in sports and more? What if that is a kind of shunning the problems that they're facing? What if that is trying to shut out the weight of the state's problems, the state's oppression. What if that's to weigh, what if that's to, what if all of this is just a way to drown out the sufferings they're facing, just as the slaves are drowning out their sufferings by singing songs, so the people are drowning out their sorrows and weight of their oppression and grieving by depending on other things. Not that there's anything wrong with singing or entertainment or football games or anything like that. It's just interesting to note. And another thing I've been reading was William Faulkner's Sanctuary, which is about, of course, I told you, the brutal violation of Temple Drake. I was interested in it because once Harold Bloom mentioned it as a major work, even though Faulkner claimed he wrote it for money, just to make money. And, of course, it seems to be very Jacobean and Jacobean in the sense that some of the Jacobean plays of the era of King James I in England were concerned with poison, murder, sexual depravity, a bunch of very seedy topics to signal the darkness of the age at that time. And Shakespeare's plays during that period, a lot of those were the great tragedies, deal with these dark subjects of declining families, declining kingdoms, broken marriages, 
broken governments and more, which is a fascinating thing to look into. And Faulkner is writing in Sanctuary the portrait of a kind of depraved society which, in which Temple Drake's is both a victim and a kind of venial person, and at the same time where men abandon their women to suffering, where Gowen Stevens, one of the characters, abandons Temple Drake to be raped by Popeye with the corn cob. Yes, that happens. It's not depicted in the book directly, but it happens in the aftermath is shown when Temple is bleeding out of her loins. Yes, that is happening in Faulkner's novel. I don't have much to comment on it. Maybe I will return to it in a future podcast when I have more knowledge of the book and when I have a guest to speak with, speak on it with. I think I'll hold off until I can find more appropriate time and a more appropriate situation to discuss Sanctuary, and I think it deserves more than a mere brief mention. And now let's talk about the epidemic of gun violence, which you're all told about in the media. We have a unique epidemic of gun violence because everybody's shooting everybody, or at least school shooters are shooting everybody in schools. So before I wrap up, I think I'll read a bit from Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. I'll see if I can find a good passage and read it for you all before I end. Fellow citizens, I shall not presume to dwell at length on the associations that cluster about this day. The simple story of it is that 76 years ago, Frederick Douglass gave this speech in 1852, so 76 years ago would be around 1776. The people of this country were British subjects. The style and title of your sovereign people in which you now glory was not then born. You were under the British crown. Your fathers esteemed the English government as the home government and England as the fatherland. The home government, you know, although a considerable distance from your home, did in this exercise of its parental prerogatives impose upon its colonial children such restraints, burdens, and limitations as, in its mature judgment, it deemed wise, right, and proper. But your fathers, who had not adopted the fashionable idea of this day, of the infallibility of government, and the absolute character of its acts, presumed to differ from the home government in respect to the wisdom and to justice of some of those burdens and restraints, they went so far in their excitement as to pronounce the measures of a government unjust, unreasonable, and oppressive, and altogether such as ought not to be quietly submitted to. I scarcely need say, fellow citizens, that my opinion of those measures fully accords with that of your fathers. Such a declaration of agreement on my part would not be worth much to anybody. It would certainly prove nothing as to what part I might have taken had I lived during the great controversy of 1776. To say now that America is right and England wrong is exceedingly easy. Everybody can say it. The dastard, not less than the noble brave, can flippantly descant on the tyranny of England towards the American colonies. It is fashionable to do so. But there was a time when to pronounce against England and in favor of the cause of the colonies tried men's souls. They who did so were accustomed, were accounted in their day plotters of mischief, agitators and rebels, dangerous men. To side with the right against the wrong, with the weak against the strong, and with the oppressed against the oppressor. Here lies the merit, and the one which of all others seems unfashionable in our day, when people were not as in tuned with the idea of abolitionism as we are now. The cause of your liberty may be stabbed by the men who glory in the deeds of your fathers, but to proceed. Feeling themselves harshly and unjustly treated by the home government, your fathers, like men of honesty and men of spirit, earnestly sought redress. They petitioned and remonstrated. They did so in a decorous, respectful, and loyal manner. Their conduct was wholly unexceptionable. This, however, did not answer the purpose. 
They saw themselves treated with sovereign indifference, coldness, and scorn, yet they persevered. They were not the men to look back. As the sheet anchor takes a firmer hold, when the ship is tossed by the storm, so did the cause of your fathers grow stronger as it breasted in the chilling blast of kingly displeasure. The greatest and best of British statesmen admitted its justice, and the loftiest eloquence of the British Senate came to its support. But with that blindness which seems to be the invariant characteristic of tyrants, since Pharaoh and Assos were drowned in the Red Sea, the British government persisted in the exactions complained of. This madness of this course, we believe, is admitted now even by England, but we fear the lesson is wholly lost on our present rulers. Oppression makes a wise man mad. Your fathers were wise men, and if they did not go mad, they became restive under this treatment. They felt themselves the victims of grievous wrongs, wholly incurable in their colonial capacity. With brave men, there is always a remedy for repression. Just here, the idea of a total separation of the colonies from the crown was born. It was a startling idea, much more so than we at this distance of time regarded. The timid and the prudent, as has been intimated, of that day were, of course, shocked and alarmed by it. And he goes on for a while. And then he goes on and critiques how everything is now. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions, whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. This is a reference to Psalm 137, which is the Hebrews cry after or while they're in captivity in Babylon. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me reproach before God and the world. My subject then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly blinds her, binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will in the name of humanity which is outraged, in the name of liberty which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call and question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery. The great sin and shame of America, I will not equivocate, I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can command, and yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice, or who is not at heart a slaveholder, shall not confess to be right and just. And here's one of the finer, finer passages I'll read before I close. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. 
a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world, travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last layer facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. So that will be a wrap, and this has been Anand Venigala, and I was your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast. Tune in next time for more discussion as we discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun.